You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. It is an honor to be here with you guys and to cover for Pastor Riz while him and his family are away over the Christmas holidays. Um, My husband David and I have been a part of the Reality Church Ohana for a few years now, and it's always a privilege to be able to share um, the word with you guys on a Sunday morning. Uh, By way of introduction, I uh, should let you guys all know that I sprained my ankle yesterday, um, which was really unfortunate, and so if I don't move around a lot up here, that is why. Um, And I wasn't doing anything cool or interesting or athletic. Um, I was walking and um, I went to the urgent care just to make sure it was just a sprain and four different doctors, you know, asked me, how did this happen? And they were so kind, Um, you know, they had their clipboards and they're writing it down. They're like, oh, walking. Yes, okay, let's write that down. Um, Yeah, and I don't believe in karma, but it did feel a little bit like that because just the night before, David and I were watching a reality TV show. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the show Big Brother. Um, And on the show, there was a girl who was doing absolutely nothing and she just fell over and sprained her ankle. And I might have made a little joke about it. And the very next day, it was me, um, literally doing the same thing, just trying to walk on the grass. So, um, yeah, if I'm stationary, that is why. Um, We are in the Advent season. This is the four weeks leading up to Christmas in the church calendar. And the word Advent, if you didn't know, it just means arrival or coming. And in this case, of course, we're referring to the coming of God himself in the person of Jesus. And it's a time of year where Christians around the world set aside time, both communally and individually in your own homes, to meditate on the story of Christmas and what it means for us. And I'm really excited to be able to do that with you all this morning. The Christmas story is one of the most well-known Bible stories globally. And there's a lot of reasons for this. For one, it's just a really good story, Um, especially uh, you guys, if you grew up in a Christian home, celebrated Christmas at an early age, there's so much about the Christmas narrative that really captures the imagination. You know, this is a story with stars and wise men and shepherds and angels. But at the heart of this story, this story at its very essence, is it's a story about God becoming flesh and blood and living with us. And that's what I want to meditate on this morning. And there's a lot of places that we could go in scripture to experience this story. We could go to the birth narratives of the Gospel of Matthew. We could go to the birth narratives in Luke. We could go to the prologue of John. Um, But instead, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the Christmas story through the lens of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. So if you are new to reality or you haven't come in a little while, um, you might not know this, but we have been studying the book of Philippians for a few months now. And it just so happens that one of the most beautiful Christmas stories 
is found here in this book. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Now, some of you might be thinking, um, Abby, didn't we just study this a few weeks ago? We did. That is true. Um, but this is truly one of those passages you can come back to again and again and again. Now, depending on the translation you have in front of you, either physically or on your phone, you might notice that verses 6 through 11 are indented, or they're put in a column. I think it's the NIV that does this, the New Living Translation. This is the translator's way of telling you that this little portion is poetry. It's written in a poetic form. Um, and actually, uh, historians believe that these verses were memorized by the early church and sung together as a very early Christian hymn. So we're going to read together, and as we read, uh, I do want you to notice a shift that happens in this passage at verse 9. So there's going to be a shift in verse 9 that's going to break this poem into two halves. So just Notice that when we pass by it, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good, and we acknowledge this morning that you are our greatest gift, you are our greatest example, and as we meditate on your love and generosity towards us through the Christmas story, I pray that we would be moved to respond in new ways to the people around us. God, I ask that you would open up our hearts and our eyes and our ears to what you would want to speak through the scripture to us. And more than anything, I pray that as we walk away from this morning, um, we would have a greater understanding of your deep, deep love for us. Amen. So because I'm uh, pretty visual and I think it's helpful, I'm just going to put a little... Uh, diagram of the text on the screen for us so you can see the way this poem works. If you attended um, our Philippians class last year, this might be familiar to you. Uh, so the first half of the poem, what you're seeing visually re represented, verses six through eight, um, this is um, the descent of Jesus. So these verses describe Jesus moving downward in stages from God in heaven to humanity, being made in the likeness of man, being in the form of a servant, 
and it climaxes with not just death, but as Paul writes, even death on a cross. And so you're visually meant to imagine this descent from heaven to earth to the cross to the grave that Jesus moves um, downward. Um, this is half of the poem is sometimes referred to as the humility of Jesus. And then you guys hopefully noticed as we were reading in verse 9, there is this um, great reversal. And in the second half of the poem, we see Jesus is exalted. So here we have, again, a direction change, and you're meant to envision Jesus rising, not just from the grave, but up to the throne in heaven, where he is highly exalted. And um, as it says in the passage, um, every knee bowing to him, every tongue confessing he is Lord. So it's pretty amazing, uh, in just seven verses, we have essentially the whole New Testament story. The birth, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ in this little poem. There's a lot packed into it. Now, because our focus today is going to be the Christmas story, we're going to spend our time on that first half, the humility or the descent of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but uh, for me, I don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about who Jesus was or where he was before Bethlehem. You know, when we think of Jesus and his arrival, we sort of think of the story starting, and rightfully so, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus born in Bethlehem. But what's interesting about this passage is it's almost as if Paul sort of pulls back the curtain, and in verse 6, we get this glimpse of who Jesus was before Bethlehem, before his birth. And we learn that not only did Jesus exist before his birth, but he was in the form of God. Now, the word form in English, um, at least for me, when I hear form, I think shape um, or, yeah, kind of an outward appearance. We might think of, oh, I saw a silhouette in the form of a human being. It's a shape. Um, the Greek word for form, uh, it's the word morphe, and it can also mean the internal essence of something the character in nature. In other words, the thing that makes you who you are. And so when this says that Jesus was in the form of God, it's not just saying he looked like God, but that in his essence, in his nature, he was God. Hebrews chapter one, verse three is gonna say this just as strongly. Uh, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's a really incredible statement. And then of course, yeah, the whole verse, we're not gonna get into it. Who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, but especially that middle line, he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That's a very powerful, strong statement right there. In other words, Jesus is and was God himself, eternal with no beginning and no end. And this, of course, is why Jesus can get away with saying things that sound really ridiculous for a human being to say. He can get away with saying things like in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. This sense of I have existed before my own birth, which none of us can, can say. So we keep reading, verse six. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
In other words, even though he was God, he did not count it something to be seized or clung to or held onto for himself. But verse seven, this is a great Christmas verse, verse seven, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this is where we begin to see the descent. Um, Because what happened on Christmas Day is that Jesus set aside his divine rank and status and glory that he was receiving in heaven to live among us. Um, And it's important for us to note this isn't something he was forced to do, but it is something that he willingly chose to do. Um, And I, I was meditating on this for the last, you know, week or so, and, you know, it really struck me that we will never really fully understand all that Jesus gave up, um, how great the sacrifice was. Um, we, <laughs> we're human, and being human is all we've ever known. And even if you are struggling or you're having a difficult time in your life, um, I don't really think there's any other creature on earth that we would want to sort of swap places with. Um, in our minds, yeah, being human is pretty great. I mean, there's a few uh, dogs probably in this room that have a wonderful life that maybe you would consider switching places with that are very well cared for, um, <clears throat> my parents. Um, but other than that, I mean, we think of being humans as being some of the peak, you know, right? Top of the food chain. We have no concept of what it would be like to be God and to give that up. And genuinely, we will never know. You know, I think when we have our new bodies in in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll have a better idea of all he gave up. Um, But we'll never know fully the sacrifice and the humility that it took to become human. Uh, But we can imagine, before Christmas, Jesus was worshipped, He was glorified, he was obeyed, he was honored, as was his right, as he deserved. He was immune to sickness and fatigue and hunger and thirst. And the humility of Christmas is really Jesus setting aside all of that and placing himself willingly in the vulnerable position of being a human infant. Um, What I'd love to do with you guys is look at a few of the other humbling realities of Jesus's birth. Um, I think some of these will be familiar to you, but I think they are a good reminder for us. Um, So Jesus was born um, not in Rome, the capital of the empire, but he was born in Israel, an oppressed nation under foreign occupation. So um, in the first century when Jesus was born, the ultimate superpower Uh, was the empire of Rome, and you would imagine if God himself was coming into humanity, he would come to one of the most powerful places on earth, and yet he comes to a nation under occupation, um, oppressed by a foreign empire. Not only that, but in Israel, he was not born in Jerusalem, the capital city, but in a cave in Jerusalem, sorry, in Bethlehem, where livestock were housed and fed. And this would have been surprising. I don't know if you guys remember this detail from the story of the wise men's Bible trivia. 
But where do the wise men first go when they're looking for baby Jesus? They see the star, they read the prophecy, and the first place they think to go is exactly where I would think. A king is born, we're going to show up to Jerusalem and look for him there because that's where a king is born. That's where David ruled. That's the capital city. And so they show up in Jerusalem and they realize, oh, this is the wrong spot. Um, And they learn that he's actually been born in a small village in Bethlehem. He was also not born to a wealthy or powerful family, um, but to parents who were in poverty. Now, there are a few clues that we get in the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph were not well off. Um, Probably the most clear picture of this is a little verse in Luke chapter 2. So according to Jewish law, after you had a child you would be required to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And according to the law, the animal that you should sacrifice was a lamb. However, there's this little verse in Leviticus that says, well, what if the family's too poor? What if they can't afford a lamb? What should they bring? And in Leviticus it says, you bring either two pigeons or some translations say two turtle doves. And in Luke chapter 2, we read, this is what Mary and Joseph bring to the temple after the birth of Jesus um, because they couldn't afford a lamb for the sacrifice. So this is just one of those clues that tell us that not only are Mary and Joseph essentially unknown, um, but they are of humble means. And then lastly, uh, Jesus was born not in honor, but surrounded by scandal. Um, Jesus would have been born in a small community and the story around his birth would have spread quickly that he was born out of wedlock. Um, Which, this is a story that would ultimately follow Jesus throughout his ministry and even long after his death and resurrection. Um, It's interesting, uh, even a hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Opponents of Christianity, this was really interesting for me to learn, opponents of Christianity would use the story of Jesus' birth as a way to mock Christians. I'm going to read to you a quote from an opponent of of Christianity, a man named Celsus. He was a a Greek um, philosopher. And listen to how he describes the birth of Jesus. He says that he was born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country, convicted of adultery. She disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child. And his point, if you read his whole statement, is that it's impossible that God would come in this way. Um, He goes on to, to say that it was impossible that God would choose someone like Mary because she was neither rich nor of royal rank, seeing no one, even of her neighbors, knew her. Of course, the birth of Jesus isn't as low as he would go in his lifetime. Uh, Jesus would spend the majority of his adult life and his ministry um, without a home, traveling from place to place. He would surround himself with men and women who were uneducated, who had very little power, uh, very little uh, fame, and some of whom had a really, uh, honestly, terrible reputation. 
Uh, again, Celsus, the same Greek philosopher, uh, mocks Christianity for the type of people that Jesus hung out with. Listen to what he, how he describes the disciples. I thought this was actually kind of funny. Um, he says, Jesus gathered around him 10 or 11 persons of notorious character, the very wickedest of tax collectors and sailors and fishermen who had not acquired even the merest elements of learning. And he fled in company with them from place to place and obtained his living in a shameful manner. This is the way that people described the disciples and the birth and the life of Jesus. Jesus surrounded himself with those who were lowly in society. Um, in his life, of course, he would experience hunger, he would experience thirst, he would experience temptation and exhaustion, he would be mocked, he would be rejected, and ultimately would be betrayed by those closest to him. And unlike other leaders, Mark 10 says he came not to be served, as you would expect, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and then Philippians 2 says he would go even lower than this. Verse 8 says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the ultimate destination of Jesus' life, and it's the ultimate expression of his humility. Now, Paul is writing to a Roman audience, uh, a church in the city of Philippi, and Philippi's sort of claim to fame is that they were a Roman colony, which means that many of the people in Paul's audiences are themselves Roman citizens, which means they know what crucifixion is. And they know that it was reserved for the empire's most dangerous criminals. Uh, criminals that Rome wanted to make an example of. So Rome had this philosophy, and to be honest, it was a very effective philosophy, with the exception of Jesus. And that was that if you could make someone's death so shameful, it would prevent the community from ever following in their footsteps. And so crucifixion was their way of doing this. It was their way of providing a death so shameful that those who would follow or model themselves after this individual um, would disband it. This was the purpose of crucifixion. Now, for those of us in this room, we have a very mixed view of crucifixion. Um, and I think it keeps us from experiencing the full impact of this passage. Um, I think we all know instinctively that if you were to look at the form of a cross or the symbol of a cross, I think we all know in this room that we are looking at an ancient method of execution. I mean, we intellectually know that. Um, but it's almost a second thought, isn't it? It's like a secondary thought, right? When we, if you see the symbol of a cross, yes, you know it was a place of death, but that comes second in our minds. And the reason, of course, for this is because we are living in the light of Jesus. And what Jesus did is he redefined that symbol for us. So as Christians, when we see the symbol of a cross, it's actually the symbol of victory and it's a symbol of hope and salvation. Um, where David and I, uh, our ministry is, 
up where the worship team plays, there's this you know, giant wooden cross, and it represents this is our moment of victory. It has been redefined as a place of hope. This is why crosses are on cathedrals and mountaintops and jewelry and gravestones. It's been redefined, and we live in light of that redefinition, and that's a beautiful thing. But for the Philippians in Philippi, they have no mixed perception of the cross. The cross is a place of shame. Even more than a place of suffering, actually. Shame. To give us a a picture of how a Roman would have viewed the cross, um, you should know that if you were a Roman citizen, one of the perks, one of the benefits of your citizenship was that you would never be crucified. Uh, Roman, Roman citizens were exempt from the punishment of crucifixion. What a great benefit. Sign me up. And the reason for this was, the idea was that if you were a Roman, crucifixion was unworthy of you. It didn't matter what you committed, how terrible your crime was, it was actually illegal to die by crucifixion. Um, Some of you guys may have read uh, the works of Cicero in high school or in uh, college. He is a Roman philosopher, and he was living and writing around the same time as Jesus and Paul. And listen to what he says about crucifixion. He says, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act Um, of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that could possibly describe so horrible a deed. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things, or the endurance of them, but the mere mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen. In other words, if you are a Roman citizen, of course you will never experience crucifixion, but you should never even let the thought of crucifixion enter your mind. It is unworthy of you because your status is so much higher than that. And here, (laughs) Paul says, that's our king. That's our model. That's my hero. That's who I'm going to model my life after. A man who willingly humbled himself to the cross. That's who we celebrate. And so the humbling that begins in Christmas actually climaxes at the cross and the grave. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing uh, to, to look at the humility of Jesus But again, I think for us, we still come at it in our modern way of thinking with a little bit of a disadvantage. Because when when you and I read Philippians and we see the humility of Jesus, um, for us, it's a beautiful thing in part because in our culture, humility is a virtue. Humility is a virtue. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist or... You know, if you live in our society, we celebrate and we honor humility. You know, you could go to a leadership school, doesn't even have to be a Christian leadership school, and humility is praised among 
leaders. And so for us, even this, we're removed from because we see the picture of Jesus and his humility and we're so used to associating it with a virtue. But in the Greco-Roman world, in this world that Jesus was born into, uh, humility was actually not a virtue. It was not a virtue. It's almost, it's almost impossible for us to wrap our minds around that because we're so ingrained in a, like a post-Christian culture. Um, but in, in Greek writings, there are several, uh, they're called virtue lists, where Greek authors would write lists of virtues. And humility is not found among them. A really famous one was found from the 6th century BC. 147 virtues are listed. Humility is not among them. Instead, we find the love of honor. And what's so fascinating, and it was, it was interesting for me learning this as I was preparing, is that many historians actually point to the crucifixion as the moment when humility um, became celebrated and redefined. Uh, John Dixon points this out in his book, Humilitas. He says, what we read in Philippians 2 is nothing less than a humility revolution. Honor and shame are turned on their heads. The highly honored Jesus lowered himself to a shameful cross, and yet in doing so became not an object of scorn, but of praise. Honor has been redefined, greatness recast. If the greatest man we have ever known chose to forego his status for the good of others, the shameful place is now a place of honor. The low point is the high point. And the question that that leaves us with is why, right? Why would Jesus go through all of this? What is his motivation? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Second Corinthians 8-9 puts it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In other words, he went through this for you, for me, for us, for his love for us. I love that verse in Hebrews where it says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. What did Jesus gain after the cross that he did not have before it? The only thing he gained was you and I. He had everything before that. He was God in heaven. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. You are the joy set before him. When you read Philippians 2 and you read of the humility of Christ, what motivates that humility is his love for you. And if you get nothing else from this morning, from this story, it's that Jesus loved you so much that he made himself vulnerable, he made himself weak, he suffered, and he walked through shame um, in order to be in relationship with you. This is what Christmas is about, and I, I hope and pray that for us this week and you know, beyond, as we are thinking about these symbols of Christmas, you, know, you see the nativity scene, you see the manger, you see the star and the wise men, um, that it would be a reminder to you of the love of Jesus for you.
Now, we could easily end there, and it is tempting to do so. However, I do think it would be a slight disservice to the text because we are missing one little phrase in the passage. I don't know if you guys noticed, but in our passage this morning, there is a command, uh, or to soften it a little bit, an invitation from Paul to us, and it's the very first line. Verse five, Paul says, have this mind among you. Other translations say, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so we can't meditate on the humility of Jesus without also acknowledging that Paul is inviting us into the same kind of humble living, the same kind of generous love towards one another. And it can be a little intimidating because of course the example of Christ is so far above and beyond anything that we ourselves can attain. And if you're like me, uh, when you read scripture and you come across a command like this or an invitation like this, your first instinct might be to just sort of try really hard, right? I'm gonna try really hard to live a more humble life. I'm gonna try really hard to be more loving. But personally, I think what's much more effective is to simply be saturated in the story of Christ's love for you. And I think what will naturally happen when you experience the great love of Jesus for you is that you will naturally extend that to others. I think it will happen. And so as we read the story over and over of how much God loves us, um, I think what that does is if it really does make it into our hearts, it motivates us in the way that we treat one another. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And as they do, I wanna close by reading to you guys a poem. It's actually the lyrics to a song. And I've sort of had it in my head as I've been preparing this message. It's from a singer-songwriter that I really love. You probably have heard of him, uh, John Mark McMillan. And he wrote a song on his most recent album. It's called um, The Road, The Rocks, and The Weeds. And in an interview about this song, he says that it is a song about the humility and willingness of God to live and to suffer with people on earth. The humility and the willingness of God to live and to suffer with people on earth. That's the Christmas story. And that's the story that Um, we're going to be thinking about all week. And so here's part of the poem. Um, He writes, uh, Come down from the stars, show your human scars, tell me what it's like to believe. Come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartment, and tell me of the God you know who bleeds. Singing goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker, is spread out on the road, the rocks, and the weeds. And Aphrodite would not weep, nor Zeus would suffer for the weak, but you have come to stand inside my pain. I don't know where any of you guys are this morning. I don't know if Christmas is going to be a time of joy or a time of loneliness or a time of difficulty or loss. I think each of us represent some of that across the board. But the beauty of this story and that I love about it so much is that we are not alone. Um, We worship a God that has come to be with us, to live with us, to dwell with us. 
And as we sing Christmas songs and as we read from the Gospels these stories, I hope it translates to you as how much Jesus loves you. I mean, it's the simplest statement, but that's really what it is. The manger and the cross and just this big grand narrative, it boils down to see how much I love you. See how much I love you. Um, you don't have a God up on Mount Olympus, right? We don't worship Zeus who sits up on Mount Olympus and throws lightning bolts at people who make him angry. We have a God who came to be with us in the midst of our pain and our suffering. Um, that's a beautiful thing. So join me as I pray over us and then we'll transition into a time of reflection and worship. Jesus, we, we thank you for your great love for us. And I just pray that we would saturate ourselves in this reality this Christmas. And if nothing else, this story of Christmas would remind us of how much we're loved, how much you love us. Um, for those of us in the room who maybe this is a difficult season, um, that it would be a comfort to know that we worship a God who's with us in our, in our exhaustion or in our loss or in our joy. Um, he's there with us. He's present. And I pray that that would really move us in the way that we treat one another and the humility we show to one another. Pray these things in your name. Amen.